Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hi, I'm Althea Kaminsky for the Learning Scientists, and today we're joined by Spencer Russell from Toddlers Can Read. Spencer, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for letting me speak. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about early literacy and toddlers. And so I just wanted to open up by asking, what are the best practices in early literature education? Because that's a literature that I'm not so familiar with. Wonderful question. So there's really two big buckets I want to focus on here when it comes to best practices. The first bucket is phonics. The second bucket is phonological awareness. So when it comes to phonics, what this means in simple terms is understanding the relationship between the letters and the sounds those letters make, understanding what those symbols on the page say. And we have decades of research at this point. It's called the science of reading, this kind of movement away from memorizing whole words or looking at and guessing based on pictures that say that what our brains are really doing is we're looking left to right and we're using a systematic code, which is phonics to put those sounds together. So structured, systematic, explicit phonics instruction is the first big building block in a smart, effective, works for all kids approach to literacy. Each of those components, just to get into it really quick, structured means that we have a specific order that we're teaching the sounds. It is not random. We're going generally easiest and most frequent, harder, uh, less regular, less frequent sounds. It is uh, systematic. So systematic instruction means it's part of a broader program and it is explicit. We're not putting a bunch of texts or books in front of kids and assuming or guessing they're going to get it. We are actually sitting down doing explicit lessons, teaching them the sounds that those letter symbols represent. So phonics is a big chunk of it. Another big chunk is this idea of phonological awareness specifically, I'm, I'm using my hands, but you, your listeners can't see like a, a big funnel diagram get narrower as you go from top to bottom. There's phonological awareness, which is like this um, umbrella term. Underneath that is phonemic awareness, which is the ability to hear, manipulate, understand different sounds. And within phonemic awareness, there's a bunch of different skills, like rhyming and being able to play with and change the different sounds in words. But two that are really important for parents and for educators are called segmenting and blending. So segmenting is the ability to hear a word like the word fast, and break it down into its four sounds or the four phonemes. F-a-s-t. Blending is a, a, a similar process, but essentially the opposite, where we're hearing the individual phonemes, the individual sounds, and combining them together into a word. F-a-s-t. Makes fast. So this phonemic awareness skill is incredibly important for reading and spelling, and phonics obviously sits at the base of all of that because we need to understand the letter sounds in order to do things like. So if we, if, if we take these kind of two buckets and we say, okay, we have explicit, structured, systematic phonics instruction, and we have strong phonemic awareness instruction, really good blending, really good segmenting, then we have a really smart, strong approach to reading. And again, there are decades at this point of research that back this up, books that have been written on this, every meta-analysis that looks at literacy instruction says that systematic, structured, explicit phonics plus phonemic awareness is one of the strongest predictors of a kid's reading ability is the way to get a kid's reading. So I have a three and a half, almost four-year-old. So I was really interested, right, to know what, uh, how do I know when he's ready to read, and what would maybe be a few starting points for me? Wonderful. First, that's such a cute age. So congrats on that. 
It is. I know. They're a, a, adorable and infuriating. In terms of how to get started with your son, one of the first things to think about is just, do you want to get started? And there's no judgment to this question at all. It's an individual decision for parents to make because there's a lot of other things to work on. And at all times, as parents, we're kind of prioritizing, what do we really want for a kid? What are we willing to sacrifice and pull time from this to do this? And so while teaching your kid to read doesn't take a lot of time, it takes a couple minutes a day, that still is some time. So the biggest thing to start for you or for anyone else is just to, to think through, is this something I really want to do at this stage? Because it's going to require a little bit of learning on my part to figure out what to do. And it's going to take a little bit of time teaching them. And there's going to be a little bit of struggle getting into a rhythm and, and finding out the best lesson for them and the best way that they learn. There's beautiful things on the other end of it, which is them reading independently and you really locking into that lesson and enjoying the time together. But it it takes a little bit of time to get into. And so determining whether or not you're ready to get started would be the first step. After that, we've got a couple readiness signs that we're looking for in children. One of those signs is his ability to pronounce the sounds. He doesn't have to be able to say every sound perfectly. We know that some sounds like l and r, among others, are just tougher for the mouth to say, and it takes longer to develop. But many sounds kids can say pretty quickly, like m or s, some of the earlier developing sounds. And if he can say those sounds and development sign number two, he's got the memory to hold on to things from day to day, then there's no reason why you can't show him a sound, play different games and activities with that sound, and then have him remembering and carrying those sounds over from day to day. So we're looking at the oral language, and then we're also looking at the memory. After that, the biggest thing is just your belief in his ability to focus on the lesson. And this is a little bit more abstract, but it's super, super important because there's a lot of parents who believe their kids can do it. And as a result, when the lesson's tough or challenging, they look for other ways to engage the kid and they think about ways to make it better. And their kid gets it. And there's people who don't think the kid can do it yet. And so no matter how good the lesson is or what they see, they're perceiving everything through a lens of this kid isn't ready. Let me quit and let me come back later. So if it's the right time to start, he's got the oral language skills. He's got the memory skills. You think that he can focus, not like sit down still for like a long time, but like you think you can play letter games with him and he'll enjoy it and he'll say those sounds back to you then there's no reason why he can't get going. It sounds like one of the first requirements is um, just how speech is progressing normally, right? So if, if they can't make the letter sounds, then it'll be really difficult for them to learn how to read the letter sounds. That's right. And kids can learn letter sounds before they can say them. Like you can do identification games and there's kind of this spectrum of easier questions to harder questions. Easier is just showing a sound and having the kid say it back to you. The sound is S, now you say it. A little bit more challenging, but still pretty easy, showing them two or three sounds. Which one says S, and they touch it, or they hit it, or they jump on it, or they run to it. That's something they can do without being able to pronounce the sound. Mm -hmm. I just find it's easier if they can. And if you're looking at 26 letter sounds and they can say half of them, but can't say the other half, you might as well start with those sounds that they can say. But there gets to be a point with certain children with speech delays or language de delays where that kid gets older, five, six, seven, eight. And now we've kind of got to start to do some reading, whether mm -hmm. we can say those sounds or not. And in that case, I think identification is the way to go. When we talk about toddlers, really little kids, and parents are choosing between reading and speech, 
my vote is always focused on speech first. Do what you need to do to develop that oral language. And then once you feel ready, we can jump into the reading. Right. Thanks. That's that's really helpful. I mean, for me, my my uh to be transparent, one of the reasons why I was really excited to interview is because I have a three-year-old and we read books every night, right? I read to him. He clearly memorizes certain passages, right, of like favorite books where like it's like a call and response thing and he knows what happens at this particular part. Um, but he also has some speech delays where he had he had a tongue tie and he had to get ear tubes in, right? Um, and it, it's interesting. It's so it's so cool to watch kids grow and to see the different skills that they have, right? So he clearly understands much more than he can say. His memory is clearly very good. And it's frustrating for him and for us that I know that he wants to say more than he can. Um, so I could see uh, parents being conflicted about, well, maybe if we taught early literacy skills, maybe that would be another form of communication we might have while the um, while the speech part of it, the actual like physical movement, right? I think in my case, in his case, I think that's all it is. It's just you know, his tongue couldn't move around as much before. Now it can. And so we're, we're just learning. So I could see that being a really sort of, like you said, a, a, a something that every family has to kind of weigh on their own, where they, if this is something you have time for, and also where your child is in development. But it sounds like having, starting from a strong foundation of speech skills will certainly aid in literacy development is what I'm, what I'm hearing. Right. And this is where it really does get down to the family and the personal level. Like we did a speech course for our son when he was two at the same time that I was teaching him how to read. It was, we were working on a speech. We were trying to get him to put two words together. He was only saying one word at a time. We wanted him to get to two. And it's like, he just didn't get the concept that he, he could do two. And we learned a bunch of really good strategies of if, if you want them to to, to say two words, you have to model two words. Mm-hmm. And we had done all these things that made his receptive language really strong, like talking complete sentences and reading to him. But the the ex- expressive language wasn't as strong because of specific things. Mm-hmm. And we were able to kind of balance, we're going to work on his expressive language and two to three to four words, and also take five minutes a day over here to teach some reading. And we're not going to assume that this reading is going to make that oral language better hopefully there's some kind of reciprocity between learning these two skills, but mm-hmm. we think we've got the time and attention to teach both. And that's why I encourage parents to do. There's mm-hmm. a lot of parents who have children with speech or language delays who watch my training or take my courses or follow my tips from social media. And they found that it has actually helped their kids oral language. And I think part of that is because it's just that dedicated one-on-one time focusing mm-hmm. on the sounds. It's face-to-face. They're watching the mouth formation. They're doing that stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm never going to say like teaching your kid to read will improve the oral language. I just think as long as we're intentional about both, about the oral language, we're intentional about the reading, there is an opportunity to just kind of meet our kids where they are and try and fill in the gaps on both sides. Yeah. And that makes sense. Like you said, that to teach these uh, reading skills, it's a lot of one-on-one look at my face, look at the sounds I'm saying, right. In a way that you're being much more intentional about it in a way that you maybe wouldn't have necessarily been if you were not doing that. Right. That we sort of, um, I think I, as a parent, right. And, you know, first time parents sort of took for granted that you, you just sort of think that the stuff, it just happens. Right. Um, 
and they'll, they'll just learn the language and it'll just kind of happen. And when you experience something, um, when you have any sort of like delay or, you know, non sort of typical or at least not what you thought was typical development patterns, um, it can feel it can feel a little challenging and disheartening. And so it's uh, one of the things that I'm kind of constantly fascinated about is by how how little I know or knew or felt prepared <laughs> to guide this small human <laughs> into like picking up ba- just like just basic skills, right? Like how to talk, which I should have known better because I know that I studied this in school, but I kind of naively thought like, oh, like most kids just learn to talk, right? Um, and taking for granted that it's, it's hard to get feedback from a small child if they're having difficulty talking, they can't tell you that that's what's happening. Right. Right. So it's, it's, yeah. So it makes sense to me that like, well, yeah, if you're intentional about it and probably the most important thing is really talking with them and spending, you know, devoted time with your child, just interacting in general is going to be beneficial. Right. That's right. And not to go on a tangent, but there are a lot of things I think as parents that we know are thing to do. We might even know part of how to do it, but it's a different beast when we are busy, we're tired, we are in the day-to-day work, and that thing is on a list of a thousand other things. So a, a perfect example is like, I know how to teach math. I did not teach my son how to do math. I know how to teach science and, and social studies. And all these experiences from being a kindergarten and first grade teacher, I had to prioritize and think about reading in advance. And I had to make a plan for that specific thing. And then we have everything we know about the science of reading and the best practices and phonics and phonological awareness and all these different things. And then we also have best practices in like learning science more, more, more generally, which, which is like kids are going to learn best in small groups or one-on-one, or we need data-driven instruction. These things that kind of transcend topic, but are so important for reading. Mm-hmm. And then we have best practices in child psychology in motivation and behavior, which also matter. Things like how do we give them small wins so they want to keep going? Things like how do we chunk that learning into bite-sized pieces so they can tackle it, build their confidence, and move on. And so I think that's where you can have this, you know, knowledge of how to teach speech, or I can have this knowledge of how to teach reading, or, you know, an athlete can have this knowledge of how to teach their sport. It's a different thing in the day-to-day life to then actually find the time to be able to do it and combine all these different fields together to have a plan, even if it's just a five-minute product. It takes so many different things that it never surprises me that we have amazing teachers who then, when it comes to their kid, they're just not teaching happening because there's a whole lot of life happening and, and, and it's tough to figure out how to work that other stuff in. Right. And I mean, at least for me, right, I have a sense that I have, I spend all day thinking and planning about teaching and learning um, and then I get home and that part of my brain is shut off, right? And then I'm in parent mode, which is a, a different kind of mode. And it, it is difficult to kind of think, uh, to shift gears or to figure out how to blend those two. Um, and this leads into um, the next question I had for you, which is, uh, how has your experience as a Black father and educator informed your approach to science communication? So really coming at this from kind of a different angle, right? So what we've been talking about how your your sort of professional experience might influence how you parent, right? Um, and I'm kind of interested in the, the reverse. Two answers here. The first answer, I think, is how I communicate and relate with folks online. 
a big part of my business now is just helping folks understand the best practices and how to teach their kids to read and help them feel confident in knowing that they can get started. The second answer would be in how it related to my approach to working with my students and with their families. So as it relates to like now where I sit as a black man in a predominantly uh, white female space, also as someone who has a lot of real world experience, but does not have a master's or doesn't have a PhD in education, I sit at a really interesting intersection where there is a lot of trust and and, and buy-in from families who are looking at teaching experience, teaching credentials, Mm -hmm. looking at the communication skills. But there's also a lot of skepticism from people who hold the traditional degrees or have traditionally been in the space, who have like read the books, done the things, attended the conferences, got the badge, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. skepticism there. And whether I kind of outwardly express it or not, I'm always conscious and aware of how people are perceiving me and how I need to communicate in a way that focuses on the parents. That is my primary goal. I'm not here to prove a point. I'm not here to earn someone's stamp of approval. I'm here to help parents teach their kids how to read. But also, I do have to balance the fact that there are people actively looking to either discredit to, to either discredit or invalidate or push back against this approach for multiple reasons, primarily my identity. Now, it's tricky. And the trick is I have to speak in a way that is easy for people to understand. So I'm taking my college degree and this life experience and kind of tucking it to the side. And I'm putting on the lens of what is the most fundamental essential information that you need to understand. So instead of saying something like, okay, we're going to start this process of, of, of reading by examining the role of phonemic awareness in your child's ability to blend and segment three and four sound words. And then we're going to build in a gradual progression to five to six and start to look at some alternative sounds. I would say something like, if you want your kid to be able to read, they've got to understand how to put those sounds together. So try this. And so that's the translation that's always happening. Because I lean so far in that direction, there is still this criticism from the outside. I deeply believe it's based on identity, it's based on gender, it's based on age, it's based on race. Mm -hmm. I kind of take that in stride because I know the number of people and the amount of people that I'm helping. And if people ever want to message me or question, which they sometimes do, uh, they're welcome to look at the resume. They're welcome to ask a very specific question. I've got research to back up the specific practices, as well as thousands and thousands of families that we worked with on this approach. So that's the first bucket. Hopefully that doesn't feel like too defensive. That's just real. It's, it's balancing communication across two parties with two different interests. As it relates to communication with families as a teacher, I love this. So like working with families as a teacher was my favorite thing. I think it's a big reason why I work with families now. And my number one goal was to make the information easy to understand, easy to digest, and actionable for the parent at home. And it was less about me being like a black male educator, and it was more about the identity of my families, black and Hispanic families in Houston who need the support. It was their identity. It was their kid's identity. It's not, I am a black male. It is, your kid is a black boy. Your kid is a Hispanic girl. Your kid is in a neighborhood and in a zip code where there aren't as many resources as other places. 
your kid needs a succession of incredible teachers. They need amazing support from home. They need this deep belief. They need these skills. And we need to build that together. There's no way that I can do everything on my own or you can do everything on your own. We need each other to support your kid. And so I think that communication was largely rooted in kind of like our shared identity as uh, a class and as parents. It was based on their lived experience in that situation. And it was the overwhelming goal. Uh, I, I met with every family at their house. We sat down, we ate dinner, we talked. And it was, we are on the same team. Here's what we need. Here's how I'm going to support your kid. Here's how you can support at home. I want to know what you're doing. I want to be in communication. I want to build on your strengths. And that stuff I could talk about all day long because that's the communication, direct to family, in person that I love to do. That's wonderful. And it sounds like you've had um, an, an amazing impact, which is, um, like you said, probably the the best thing about working directly with people and doing this type of science communication research. Uh, and I think I, it, it's really interesting how you talked about having you having to like thread the needle essentially, right? That you have this push and pull where you need to have like, yes, I know what I'm talking about here. It's evidence-based. It's backed up by things, but also how do I effectively convey my message so that I can help the people who need help with this, right? Right. Um, right? And how do you balance that and right, handle um, people's criticism of that or, right, it's, it is a, a tricky balance to, to do. And I think you do it really well. I really enjoyed looking through your website and your resources, um, which I would encourage anyone to check out should they be interested in learning more about early literacy. You also provide some fantastic blog posts explaining some of the science behind it, which clearly as learning scientists, we really uh, like and appreciate and appreciate the kind of uh, the skill it takes to understand the like complicated, not necessarily complicated, but like basic science research and translate that into a way that people who are interested in this can learn more because a lot of times um, parents want to be informed about what what's going on with their kids. Right. And it really is helpful to see what's kind of going on behind the curtain. So it's, it sort of helps, uh, helps them trust you, right? Because you're not just saying, oh, trust me, I know what I'm talking about. It's, well, no, here is some actual information in terms that you can understand, right? So that you are inviting them to be a part of this process, right? Which I think is incredibly effective and wonderful. Right. And I think there's this kind of overwhelming desire from parents to help support their kids. In a lot of cases, parents are working on literacy activities with their kid already, but they're just doing what they did. They're mm -hmm. just memorizing words or singing the ABC song and it like looks good. It's quick, easy wins, but it's not effective. And I think that's the gap that we need to bridge is parents who are wanting to, who are doing mm -hmm. these things already, but it's just ineffective practices because science has changed. What we've learned has changed. The way that we are learning how to and teaching how to read right now is different than what a lot of us experience in school. Mm -hmm. And that can be jarring. And we, we, we see the same shift across subjects, especially with math and the common core standards where those are rooted in studies comparing countries and what's happening it's it, it, that's rooted in horizontal alignment across districts and states and also vertical alignment so kids are ready when they get to college like there's all that stuff that we know is important but parents don't quite understand so they're either kind of digging their feet in to where they are now or they just kind of continue what they're doing now not knowing that there's something out there that is better and i think that there's a lot of people in kind of the online reading space who see that challenge and their approach to addressing it is through information. 
They say, let me share the studies and let me share the books and let me tell you how much I know. Parents are rarely interested in directly hearing the studies or the books or the knowledge. Parents are interested in what works, what is your proof that it works, and how do I do it? So there's this this phrase that my business coach taught me at the, at the very beginning of this journey where he said, focus on transformation over information. You want to be transformational over informational. And the information, the science, the research supports that. It's not that we're getting rid of it. It's just understanding how to communicate that in a way that an audience can hear, be moved by, and get kind of moved into action. And so people do want the info. There is a gap and a disconnect, but it's, it, it, it's how we package it, how we brand it, how we message it, that I think ultimately is, is what parents need to see, hear, and receive in, in order to get this process started with their kid. Right. I really like that, the transformational instead of the informational, because it's, um, it, in my experience, right, that there's always kind of, like you said, right, there's this feeling like, oh, I, I need to, I want to justify what I'm doing. I want you to trust me. I want you to, you know, uh, rest assured that like this is based on data and science. But when you communicate in that way, it feels like you're talking to people or at people instead of with them, right? Um, and it takes a really, it, and it's, it, it's challenging, right? It's not, or at least it's something that I, I was not trained as a researcher on how to talk with people about science, right? About the science for, for me, science of effective learning. And so it's been a journey I've been going on is to learn how to have that effective communication when you're talking with people about science that interests them and what it can do for them in a way that is right, conducive to bi-directional communication where you are understanding your audience, you are not being patronizing, right? Because that's never the tone that I want to take. Um, and really feeling, making people feel seen and heard, right? And that is ultimately what leads to trust and collaboration, which is how people will, you know, be, be in a place where they can receive some really important and useful information. Right. Is it, it, are, there, are there specific practices that you've learned that allow you to do that? I would say we, we, we've talked a lot, the, the, the learning scientists as a whole, and we recently gave a talk and have uh, a paper about the, the, our emphasis on bi-directional communication instead of the kind of standard model, or at least the model that we felt we were trained with was one of science dissemination, right? Where I go up, I give a presentation, here are the facts, kind of take them or leave them. And what we found when we've given workshops or have the opportunity to have talks in front of people that it is everyone leaves the table feeling much more satisfied with the with the learning that has occurred when we allow space for discussion for examples here's here's so we'll talk about let's say retrieval practice here's what it is here's a few examples and then ask people how might you be doing this already or what are ways that you might be able to do this in your classroom and maybe you want to do this in your classroom but there's some limitations to that what are those right and so a lot of it is really reserved for, I guess, workshopping, for lack of a better term, what this might look like for you, yeah. right? Instead of saying, this is what it should be, because we recognize that people are complicated. Human beings are incredibly complex. If there's anything I'm certain of what the science has shown us is that there are so many things that go into so many different factors that influence learning and effective learning and um, from my point of view of someone trying to communicate mostly with educators, but also with students about their learning, 
it's impossible for me to know without talking with you what set of factors are relevant for you, right? I can't know what it looks like in your classroom or, you know, in your learning environment. I don't know what particular background you're bringing to this new set of information. And so it's really, it's very difficult for me to help in any meaningful way, unless there's a con- in some some sort of exchange of information, right? I might be an expert on human learning, but you are the expert on sort of your learning on what what things are going on with you, and maybe you don't know the certain terms or labels, or you maybe need some help thinking through that, right? And so that's usually how I approach it. now in my role. I work with medical students, and so I tell them that I'm here to work through and problem solve with them how to improve their learning, right? And it really does have to be a conversation. I have some sort of, I do have a standard set of things that I think are probably going to work for most people, but I won't even be able to describe it to them until I have a better sense of what's going on with them. So I'd say I've I've really, what I've learned is how to have better conversations, I think is what I've learned as a, a science communicator. That's wonderful. I love that because what I was thinking when you share this bi-directional communication idea is the look at me versus look at you. And that's something that came up when you were speaking, which is there's a lot of people who have information and their goal in sharing information is for people to know how much information they have. It's for people to know that this information exists. And sometimes it's for people to use the information, apply the information, right? Make change in in their life. But that is a big step away from presenting it. Simply presenting doesn't mean someone is going to understand how it applies to them. Is going to really understand and process through the lens of them and themselves and then apply it in their life. That's a big jump. But if, if we stop and we say, okay, here's how this applies to you. What's going on in your life? What do you need? That's the connection that the majority of folks need in order to move to action. And so when I look online, and, and again, I'm, I'm thinking about the people whose jobs it is to inform parents about the best practices in literacy instruction. A lot of it is look at me. It is look at the information that I know. Or it is look at this. Look at this study. Look at this research. Look at this method. And it is so, so rarely look at you. When we can start to divert our attention away from ourselves, we bring ourselves in in a way that builds credibility and away from just like the information of the research, right? We loop in the parts that apply and the parts that matter, what they need to know, but we start to focus on the you, you and your kid, you and your three-year-old, someone else in their seven-year-old who's struggling. And we start to literally just use the word you. I feel like that one shift in language and intention, to be honest, can completely transform someone's ability to not only like understand the information that we're presenting, but to then move in, in, in into action in, in supporting their kid. Yeah, that's really wonderful. Like that, look at me, look at you. And that is something that I know I, that I consciously try to do when I communicate about things. And I and I don't know if I'd put it, it really thought about in the terms that you just did, but I know that I, uh, when I'm revising like a blog post or an example I'm giving in a class or presentation, um, I always sort of bulk at the, the informal one one's memory is, or, you know, right. Like, cause it feels so 
stiff and structured, right? And I think what it's getting at is what you just said with the like, look at you, right? Here's how this relates to you. Here is how you do this or how you can do this. It makes it much easier for people to relate to it on a really personal level and begin to understand. I, it, it's such a simple change, but just to understand like, this is for me, right? This is something that I can understand and is approachable for me because you're literally saying you, but it is kind of, it, it, it's it's such a simple and easy thing to do. And obviously there's more to do than just that. But I think that is one of the kind of hallmark differences between a sort of more standard science dissemination. Here's the research, here's what we show, in which case we do need to use very formal language. There's a time and a place for that. Right. But when the goal is science communication, and communicating with people, right? Just something as simple as like, we'll look at the language that you're using to make sure that this is something that people can relate to is a really, I think a really great and easy sort of actual piece of, an actual piece of advice for somebody who is interested in science communication. I agree. And I, w- I would I would wager that it differs largely depending on platform and, and how formal it is giving a presentation versus a conversation. But one of the kind of hallmark examples for me in the reading world is this stat that everybody likes to cite, which is two-thirds of fourth graders are reading below grade level. You can say that to 100 people, 100 parents of fourth graders, and you are not going to have 67 of them that are concerned. You're going to have a handful of them that hear it and make all these logical jumps. Oh, two-thirds of fourth graders are behind reading level. I have a fourth grader. What's his reading level? Oh, his reading level is behind. My kid is part of the stuff that they're talking about. I should be concerned and I should get to action. Like that's like that's a handful. Mm-hmm. We've got to make it more direct. And we've got to say, there's a really good chance that your kid is struggling to read. You may not know it yet, but there's just a really good chance that when they go to school and they see that book and they get called on to read out loud, that they're reading ahead in their head to try and memorize it or they're guessing at words or they feel embarrassed. So it might be worth just checking in with your kid to see if this is their feeling and, and, and check in with their teacher to get a sense of where they're at and how you can support. And then if I said something like, you know, because two thirds of kids in fourth grade are feeling that right now, I think that you could kind of come on that journey with me. And I don't always have all that time and space, but it is that you versus just that kind of cold number. And for many people, myself included, like I process cold numbers. I see cold numbers, I'm like, hey, this is bad. We've got to do something. But that's not everybody. And I think that's the overwhelming kind of uh, temperament and just just, just uh, like learning orientation of folks who study numbers, folks who do research, like those numbers really speak to them. That's mm-hmm. not what speaks to the audience. So we've got to keep it in, but we've got to be able to connect it to what actually matters to the parent, which is their kid's confidence, their kid's feelings in school, their kid's future success, like all that sort of stuff matters. And if, if you watch my videos and when I talk, I'm saying words like parents or mm-hmm. you or your kid as the very first thing before getting to kind of the meat of what else is kind of down the road and what else follows that just like I could, I could hook you by saying podcast hosts. And then, and then I, I can fill in whatever stat I want after bring in the research after, but I've, I've got to let you know that I'm, I'm talking to you specifically and not this, you know, that general one from the research paper. 
Right. Um, well, I think we're running a little short on time. Spencer, thank you so much for, for joining us, for joining me today. Um, I've learned a lot about literacy and about science communication. So I, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.